Well, if you've ever joined me for a backpacking trip in Colorado, you know this experience that I'm going to describe very well. We usually leave pretty early in the morning to just get on the road so that we can get there. And after about seven hours, we finally arrive at the trailhead where we will begin our hike. Everybody's usually really excited at this point. We've typically been planning for months and preparing for weeks, and so now it's time to go. We get to the trailhead, and everyone's full of energy. But as we begin to walk up that trail, the backpacks start to feel a little heavy. The climb starts to get a little steep. And even when it's sunny outside, that first part of the hike, the tree canopy covers the trail, so it kind of gets dark and and gloomy. And it starts to kind of fit the mood where everybody's getting really tired and not sure if they're going to make it. Um, In fact, I've been in plenty of those hikes where I wasn't sure I was going to make it. Uh, But eventually, we get to Music Pass. This is the crest of our climb. And when we get to Music Pass, I usually have everybody take off their backpacks and go to the ridge where you can see way down into the valley. And compared to where we have been, I mean, it absolutely looks like paradise. I should have given you a picture so you could have seen it. But it doesn't even compare to seeing it with your own eyes. Uh, I tell the guys that that's where we want to be. That's where we're headed. Well, I tell you that story because in many ways it kind of fits what our journey in Romans has been like so far. When we first announced that we were going to be going through Romans, most everybody was really excited and ready to go. But these first three chapters of Romans have been a steep uphill climb. Walking through the depravity of our sin is a very dark and discouraging place to be, but I have good news. We have reached the crest of our climb. (laughs) This morning, we'll stand on top of the ridge and see where it is that we're going. And it doesn't just look like paradise, it is paradise. This is where we become everything that God has created us to be. In our passage this morning, we're going to shift from what we've been talking about, the total depravity of sin in man's heart, and we're going to shift over to the infinite grace of God. And from this view, you'll be able to see the gift of God's grace. You'll be able to see the gift of God's justice and the gift of God's love. And all of these gifts, all the goodness and beauty inside of them, is what gives glory to the giver. And that's what we want to do this morning. So before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for uh, sustaining us through the depravity of our sin, recognizing the darkness and the difficulty of that truth. We are excited, Lord, as we kind of reach the crest of our climb to see what you have in store, where you want us to be, and how you are leading us faithfully to that place. So Lord, I just pray that we would be able to see and experience the fullness of these gifts that you have made possible through your son, Jesus Christ. May they resonate in our hearts and sink more deeply than they ever have as we spend time together this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to Romans chapter 3. And begin reading with me, if you would, in verse 21. We'll pick up where we left off last time. Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. These are some great truths. Those first two words tell us that Paul has now reached a transition. He says, but now. He's purposefully separating everything he said up to this point to what he will now begin to say. Because in the midst of our darkness, the darkness of our sin, we learn that God reveals the beauty of his righteousness. And he clarifies this by saying that it was apart from the law. In other words, this is not something that you can do on your own. Paul says that this righteousness of God was made known before it actually appeared. He said that the law and the prophets gave us a a picture of what was to come. All of the Old Testament pointed to this revelation of righteousness. And as we will see this morning, that revelation was ultimately revealed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the revelation of God's perfect righteousness. We know that's true in Acts chapter 10, verse 43. It says, of him, referring to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ is the promised revelation of God's perfect righteousness. And when we trust in him, we receive that forgiveness of sins. And I want you to notice that this is an open invitation. Paul says the righteousness of God was made available to all who believe. There's no distinction. No distinction between Jew or Gentile from the immoral to the self-righteous. We all fall short. Paul says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what that tells us is that it's available to everyone because everyone needs it without exception. And what exactly do we need? We need the gift of God's grace. Paul says we are justified as a gift of God's grace. In other words, those who were guilty in their sin are made innocent because of God's grace. But we need to understand that this is not some kind of divine free pass. That there was actually a penalty that must be paid. It came with great cost. Paul says God publicly displayed Jesus as a propitiation in his blood. Now, that's an interesting word, isn't it? Propitiation. What's interesting is that word in the New Testament is the same word in the Old Testament that is used for the mercy seat of God. Now, that's really important, so I want us to talk about that just a minute. In both the tabernacle and the temple that you see in the Old Testament, there was a room known as the Holy of Holies, right? And within that room, there was a, uh, that room was where God's glory dwelled. It was a place where God revealed his presence. And in that room 
was the Ark of the Covenant. You can see a picture of that here. You'll notice on either side of the lid are the cherubim, and their wings extend over to the middle of the Ark of the Covenant. And in between the cherubim was what was known as the mercy seat of God. Now, this is important because when the priests made sacrifices for the sins of the people, they would take the blood of that sacrifice and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat of God. But we know because of what we read in the Old Testament and, and what we see in the New Testament that, that that blood was never intended to remove the sins of the people. We know that's true because in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, it says that every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which, there it is, can never take away sins. Instead, that blood represented the life of that animal, and it gave us a picture of the atoning sacrifice that would be necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. In other words, those Old Testament sacrifices ultimately pointed to the cross. Remember, all of the Old Testament pointed to the righteousness that would be revealed. Now, let's go back in the book of Hebrews and look at a passage that I think puts all this together. So, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Listen to what this says. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of bulls and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So what this tells us is that the mercy seat of the tabernacle was a picture of the mercy seat of the cross. This is where the single sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient to forgive all sins for all time for all who believe. God publicly displayed that atoning sacrifice that all of the Old Testament was pointing us to. Paul says that through that sacrifice, we have redemption in Jesus Christ. Now, redemption is a really important word as well. And I want you to understand what this probably would have meant to the original audience. In that time, there was a common practice known as indentured servants. The way this worked is that when someone had a debt that they could not pay, then they could be purchased technically as a slave to work off that debt. But as you can imagine, with the depravity of man, it became a very corrupt system. So people were abused, there was money added to their account, and so many times they were never able to get out of that slavery. But in rare cases, a person who owed a debt that they could not pay was purchased, not in order to enslave them, but actually in order to set them free. And in that case, the person was said to be redeemed. That's what happened at the cross. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enslaved by sin and powerless 
to break free, but Jesus paid a debt with his blood in order that he might set us free. We have been redeemed. That's what happened on the cross. And what we do deserve something like that? Absolutely nothing. It is the gift of God's grace. So did God, in this case, allow our sin to, to go unpunished? Absolutely not. He poured it all onto the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin, don't miss this part, on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Look at how he continues in verse 25. Let's pick up where we left off. This was the demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul says this propitiation, this atoning sacrifice demonstrates the righteousness of God because if we're honest, we need to understand that apart from the cross, apart from the cross, God's goodness and mercy could be called into question. After all, how could a righteous judge let known sin go unpunished? Let me give you an example. Let's say there was a well-known serial killer who stood trial and was clearly proven guilty. But after the jury made its verdict, the judge steps forward and says, you know, I know what the verdict is. I know this man is guilty. He's done terrible and evil things, but I kind of feel sorry for him. I mean, he kind of grew up in a bad situation, so I'm going to let him go free. Would that be a good judge, or would he be corrupt? Because he's not passing justice. Well, according to what we've read in the first three chapters of Romans, we are guilty as well. Paul said earlier, we have all sinned and all fallen short of the glory of God. It would be unjust for God to simply look the other way and let the guilty go free. Because God understands our guilt. He understands the punishment that we deserve. I appreciate what Tim Keller writes when he says, Jesus' entire mission was to take on evil and end it. But as we have seen, evil is so deeply rooted in the human heart that if Christ had come in power to destroy it everywhere he found it, he would have to destroy us too. That's why Paul says that God passed over the sins previously committed. In other words, God held back the wrath of his judgment against sinful humanity. And Paul says that he did so out of forbearance. This is kind of patient endurance. It's the very same idea of what we looked at in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 when it tells us that the, the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. Because it is the kindness of God that ultimately leads us to the cross. 
As I said earlier, God did not let the, the penalty of our sin go unpunished. Instead, he poured his wrath, the wrath that we deserved, upon the cross. This is the demonstration of God's righteousness. And Paul explains why. He says, through the work of the cross, God became both the just and the justifier. This is important, so don't miss this. He's just because he didn't let sin go unpunished. The punishment that we deserved was placed upon Christ. Remember, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And he's the justifier. Because unlike the blood of bulls and goats, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. When his blood poured down that mercy seat of the cross, the demands of God's righteous judgment were fully and completely satisfied. Giving him the right as a righteous judge to declare everyone righteous who places their faith and trust in him. Only his sacrifice is sufficient to forgive our sins. This is the gift of God's justice. It is the means by which we are rescued from God's wrath. Listen to how Paul speaks to this during his sermon on Mars Hill. And I want you to notice what he has to say. It's in chapter 17, beginning in verse 30. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, okay? This is the same thing that he's saying in Romans. It says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Remember the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Listen to how he goes on in verse 31. Because, here's why, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Obviously, he's talking about Jesus. And I want you to understand that there is a day that has been set when every evil will be fully and completely eradicated. And the only possible way that that doesn't include us is if we have been made right in the eyes of God through faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Look at how he continues in verse 27. He says, what then, where then is boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Paul says, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, Paul finishes this section with three clarifying questions. They're really rhetorical questions because technically they have the same answer. The first thing he says is, based on the righteousness of God that has been revealed on the cross, do we have any room to boast? Paul says, no. Absolutely 
not. We cannot brag about anything we have done at all. We're not righteous because we followed the law. We're not righteous because of our good deeds. In fact, our righteousness has nothing to do with anything that we have done. Instead, we are righteous because we trust that God had to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Our salvation is a work of God from start to finish. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So no, heaven will not be filled with people singing their own praises. You won't hear anyone singing how great I am, right? You'll hear a lot of people talking about how great God is. And Paul then asks, well, then will heaven be reserved for certain kinds of people, you know, like God's chosen people, the Jews? Do they have any special privileges? The answer here, again, is no. Heaven will not be segregated in any way, shape, or form. It will be filled, the Bible tells us, with the diversity of every tribe, with every tongue, and with every nation. All of us gathered together as blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what heaven looks like. And until that day, we should take what we expect to see in heaven and put it on display in the church. There should be unity in the midst of our diversity. We should gather together as blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ, living out our faith, in gratitude of all that God has done. Since that's the case, Paul asks his final question. He says, does this mean that faith makes the law obsolete? In other words, is it now useless? Again, the answer is no. Paul says faith doesn't abolish the law. It actually fulfills the law. In other words, all the demands of the law were ultimately accomplished by Christ. And when we believe in him, his perfect obedience is credited to us. Now that's incredible. Think about that. His perfect obedience as a perfect sacrifice has been credited to you through faith in him. But it doesn't end there because our faithful obedience is an example that we are called to follow, or his faithful obedience. We should love as he loved us, in other words. We should forgive as he forgave us. We should serve as he served us. Paul actually tells the Galatians in chapter 5, 16 that the, the law can actually be fulfilled in a single word, found within the statement, you shall love, that's the word, your neighbor as yourself. As long as our heart is intent upon achieving the highest good for someone else, then the law will be fulfilled. Jesus actually said the law can be summed up in two things. And he uses the same word, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We know that, that picture because that's the, the picture of Christ's love for us. Jesus said, greater love has no one than he who lays down his life his friend. God put the gift of his love on display on the cross. 
and all these gifts, every single one of them, demonstrate how deeply cherished you are by God. The gift of his grace, the gift of his justice, the gift of his love. It is the beauty of these gifts that ultimately gives glory to the giver of these gifts. And how we live is an expression of gratitude for all that he's done. So let me close with this encouragement. If you've ever doubted God's love for you, and probably all of us have at one time or another, but if you ever find yourself in a place where you are doubting God's love, if you ever feel abandoned or left out in any way, then let me encourage you to look no further than the cross. Because that is where all that we are and have ever done was transferred to Christ so that all that he is and has ever accomplished has been transferred to us. Okay, don't miss that. When you look to the cross, what you see is that all that you are and have ever done has been transferred to Christ so that all that he is and ever will be and has always accomplished has then been transferred to you. You belong to him, and he delights in you. I recently shared with our small group how much that single thought has transformed my heart and my mind. In fact, when I sit down to spend time with the Lord, that's the phrase that first comes out of my mouth. Father, I belong to you, and you delight in me. I don't move past that point until the truth of that message sinks deep inside my soul because I need to make sure that everything that I say and do beyond that point is filtered through that truth so that if there's sin in my life that I need to confess, then I know that I can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because I belong to him, and he delights in me. If I'm burdened by fear and anxiety, I can again approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that I can rest in the promise of his loving care. If I've been hurt by someone, I know that I don't find my approval in the eyes of other people. I can go to the cross and I can see the demonstration of God's love for me in the approval that I find in him, knowing that I belong to him and he delights in me. So this week, let me encourage you to try that for yourself. When you sit down to be with the Lord, I want you to say those words, Father, I belong to you, and you delight in me. And I want you to just let them sink into your soul. Don't do anything else until you understand and appreciate the depth of the goodness of that truth. And then through that truth, carry on with what you do in your time with the Lord so that as you read his word, you know that the reason that you're reading it and the words that he's speaking is because you belong to him. And that he delights in you. And if there's ever any doubt that ever enters your mind, then look no further than the cross. 
and be reminded of the gift of God's grace, the gift of God's justice, and the gift of God's love. And may the demonstration of the goodness of those gifts give glory to the giver of those gifts because he delights in you to the praise and glory of his name. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, what good news. What incredibly good news that even while we were yet sinners, even while we were enslaved and powerless to break free, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive together with Christ. That all of the Old Testament pointed to the perfect righteousness that would ultimately be revealed by Jesus Christ on the cross where you in that moment became the just and the justifier. That you in that moment took the penalty of the sin that we deserved and placed it upon Christ. So that as being the justifier and seeing that perfect sacrifice, fulfilling all the demands of your righteousness, one sacrifice for all sins, for all time, for all who believe. You justify by transferring that righteousness of Christ into the life of a sinner who is now made clean for all eternity. Father, as we stand on the ridge and look down into the beauty of this incredible truth, may we rejoice in the gift of your grace and the gift of your justice and the gift of your love, and may we do everything within us to live within those truths and display them for all the world to see to the praise and glory of your name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a great day.